No one has ever made an impact by standing on the sidelines, whimpering, complaining, or protesting without taking action. We make progress by implementing our ideas. Pharmacists must take action. This is Polititalk Rx, the highly charged, sometimes controversial, political internet radio talk show dedicated to the profession of pharmacy. The policies that shape our healthcare system are complex and pharmacists, pharmacy professionals, and industry stakeholders must have a seat at the table to participate in conversations, discussions, and debates, which lead to actions that drive change supporting the profession of pharmacy. This podcast is intended to shake up the status quo and promote change to promote the profession of pharmacy while advocating for better patient care delivered by pharmacists. Polititalk Rx is part of the U.S. healthcare system's largest and most influential network of podcasts dedicated to our profession, the Pharmacy Podcast Network. All right, well, we're here on another show for Polititalk Rx on the Pharmacy Podcast Network, and I have the honor of being with Associate Director of Health Economics and Outcomes Research, Dr. Edward Lee. Uh, it's a, like I said, it's a huge honor to have you. I know that it's uh, been a, been in the talks for a while now about having you come down and do this, and uh, we appreciate. It. I know we tomorrow we have Sandos Day here at NSU College of Pharmacy, so thank you very much for coming today. Thanks for having me, Scott. So let's talk a little bit about your background. I know you're PharmD and PH. You have your uh, BCOP. Uh, you specialize in oncology, pharmacoeconomics, and pharmacoepidemiology. Right. But. I was more interested in your actual background. So those are all titles and all the good stuff, but I want to know a little bit, you graduating pharmacy school, I know you had said that you uh, went into residency, so mm-hmm. tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my background is I'm a second generation pharmacist, if you go all the way back, and both my parents are pharmacists. And so that's what I knew I wanted to do for uh, the rest of my life was going to pharmacy. And my parents had a store um, when I was in pharmacy school, but uh, halfway through my my pharmacy uh, education, they decided to sell it. So I needed to figure out something else to do. You were relying and, on that. Huh? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, and clinical was uh, was becoming uh, more and more important. And uh, people were saying that uh, pharmacies were uh, pharmacists were going to take on these more clinical roles. So so I really took to uh, doing the residency training. And uh, before they called it a PGY one and PGY two, uh, I did the uh, first year as a general uh, pharmacy practice residency, and then followed that up with an oncology. Pharmacy practice residency, and uh, and I really took to the oncology space because I thought the drugs were very very interesting, and um, and I knew that this was going to be an area that was uh, that was going to be booming in the future. So so I did the residency thing. By the way, it's yeah. one of those because I worked on oncology as well, and I told yeah. you about that. It's one of those areas that you're like, I really wanted to do successful, but. No, do I really want it to be successful? Because that right. means that there's a lot more patients out there, which is not good. Right. So it's one of those like hard things to talk about. We'd yeah. always be like, "Man, we're doing well." Yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, sorry Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. <laughs> no, and, and if you look at kind of the the numbers uh, that that were just released, uh, we've we've made significant progress in terms of we as a society have yeah. made significant progress in treating cancer and extending the life of, yeah. of cancer patients in the United States. So, so incredible uh, achievement on on uh, societies. Yeah. Part and uh, and so in terms of kind of my first job out of residency is uh, I was a, a good tutor in in college so I figured hey why not go into academia 
uh, started off uh, teaching at Wilkes University uh, School of Pharmacy, and uh, then I uh, had a brief hiatus uh, with uh, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, and that's where I started to learn about outcomes research and and pharmacoeconomics and 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 all of these other different aspects of of healthcare in general, such as, such as health policy. Uh, so um, when I decided it was time for me to go back into academia, uh, I went back at the University of New England, but decided to get my master in public health at the same time. So that's really where I started to develop kind of that uh, that expertise in pharmacoepidemiology, pharmacoeconomics, health policy, um, and all, all those sorts of things. And for the last uh, few years, um, when I was in academia, I had done a lot of uh, manuscripts, publications, talks on health policies and um, and uh, pharmacoeconomic studies, and a a lot of what I did focused on specifically biosimilars. And And I don't think a lot of people when they're in pharmacy school naturally think economics. Right. You know, it's a very simplistic entry point that we take prior to. And then, yeah, you take some pharmacoeconomic research and outcome stuff, but it's not like what you're doing. Right. Uh, so I think it's amazing. I, I, I know that our discussion, I wish we could have recorded that alone. It would sure. have been a, a blessing. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I want, you know, first of all, before we get any further, sure. uh, please, just out of due diligence, can you yeah. please give your uh, disclaimer before we go sure. into any questions regarding <laughs> yeah. some other things? Absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me today. I just want uh, your audience to know that I, I'm here on behalf of myself. And these uh, what I'm going to be talking about today is are my own opinions and do not necessarily reflect those of Sandoz. Perfect. Now that we got that out of the way, uh, I want to start with just, again, for the purpose of our audience, an all-inclusive audience we have. And it's I want to start from the skeleton point, uh, if you could think of it that way. Uh, Can you explain biosimilars history a bit and uh, when what they mean when we're discussing them versus brand versus right. generic, because I don't think people clearly understand what a biosimilar is. Sure, absolutely. And in order to do this, let's go way back um, at the very beginning when we first had generics available. And uh, so we, we know that uh, when a new drug gets approved, it goes through um, a regulatory process that the FDA says, okay, this drug is safe and effective. Uh, and then sometime in the 80s, uh, there uh, was uh, a law passed, the, ha- uh, the Hatch-Waxman law. And uh, what it allowed for was uh, generic companies to now come in and produce that same drug for, for, uh, for drugs that have gone off patent, mm-hmm. right? And so this, what it did was it created this pathway to say, we're going to use now the, the safety and efficacy data of the reference product. And this generic now, all it has to do is prove that it's uh, chemically identical uh, to the reference product uh, and also bioequivalent. And so in pharmacy school, right, we learned about bioequivalence and all the data that's necessary to generate that, right? The 90% confidence interval needs to be between 80 to 125%, right, right. for the CMAX and AUC, right? So we learned about that uh, in pharmacy school, and, and that's kind of part of the, uh, the approval process. Now, the problem is as we start to develop um, in terms of our technologies, uh, instead of just having chemical entities and, and chemical drugs, we started to have biologics approved. And, and, and these biological agents uh, ha- have impacted care and, and outcomes for all sorts of, of different patients, not just oncology patients, but we're talking about rheumatology and diabetes, uh, all these different areas. And, um, and so now these products were coming off patent. These biologics were coming off patent. But there wasn't 
there wasn't a pathway to now to allow other manufacturers to come in and ma and and manufacture those same those same biologics and leverage the safety and efficacy data that's already been generated by the the reference product right. so so that's what uh, what the new law allows for in the biosimilar pathway is this analogous pathway um, to a generic, except it's it's a pathway for biologics to have another manufacturer come in and produce uh, a uh, that particular biological medicine um, and leverage the safety and efficacy data of the reference product, and the biosimilar manufacturer then has to has to has to demonstrate then that it's highly similar to the reference product with no clinically meaningful differences. And I know that, and I'm getting off a little topic here maybe, sure. um, but in terms of the variances, I know that was one of the questions that I hear a lot of people talk about. Right. I don't think people recognize that drug manufacturer to manufacturer has right. variances yeah. from the original what would right. should be. And I think when they think right away biosimilar, the first thing they say is, well, there's so many variances. Oh, it's, right. it's going to be completely different. And, you know, you get that when you get a normal patient that says, I want the brand, right. you know, versus the generic. Yeah, and it, that, that goes back to the term I used earlier, the highly similar term, right? And so for chemical entities, uh, you can show that it's identical. But for any biological product, you have to remember that what if, if we were to shrink ourselves down uh, to the microscopic level and look inside that bile, it's a heterogeneous molecular population that's being administered to the patient. And so there is no identicality standard because it is impossible then, because it's a heterogeneous population, uh, to be identical from batch to batch, lot to lot over time, right? And so that's why the term highly similar was actually selected. And really the, what this does is it, it recognizes the heterogeneity of biological products itself. And so reference biologics will drift in time in terms of, uh, of specific quality, what we call quality attributes. Uh, and uh, a lot of these are not clinically meaningful at all. Right. Okay, so we discussed a little bit about the laws and the, and the aspect of that. I, I, I think taking a step back, let's look at where some of what we hear in the media, some of what we hear around healthcare, the ACA, right? Mm -hmm. The Affordable Care Act, uh, aka Obamacare. Right. Um, you know, we hear a lot about getting rid of it. We hear a lot about um, all of these these things. So taking a step back, 50,000 foot view, when we talk about the ACA, what has it done? What has it done for biosimilars? Right. The the biosimilar laws, the, the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act, that was integrated fully within the Affordable Care Act. So if uh, we had a wholesale repeal of the Affordable Care Act, uh, that would essentially go away. And um, and we have to remember that with the BPCI, again, it's set up this pathway for approval for biosimilar medications. And what this what this pathway does again is allows other manufacturers to leverage the reference product safety and efficacy data, um, so that uh, that the the registration, the phase three registration trials that demonstrate safety and efficacy don't have to be re reproduced. Right. And so that's where all of the, most of the development costs come from developing a new medication is within those prospective randomized phase three trials that, that we look at and evaluate on journal clubs, right? And so uh, if we don't have this pathway, how, how can we get 
lower cost uh, lower cost biosimilars on the market, and how will they be able to compete on price? It, it just it wouldn't be able to happen. So, uh, so when people talk about getting rid of it, we have to remember that's going to really stifle competition in the marketplace if we do that. So, I think um, what what people have been talking about with uh, ACA repeals has really been mostly around like the individual mandate right. and certain things, and so the fines, um, yeah, exactly, so like c- certain aspects of it. And and I think what most people realize is that the VPCI has done a lot of good, and and that should stay intact. So you know, I hope I whatever hope, plan comes, yeah, that has to stay. That has among to stay. among other things that have come come from it. But absolutely, I, I think that's just. I want to make sure that we. I guess I'm I'm, I'm right. your uh, your cheerleader over here yeah. uh, when it comes to the. Uh, uh, BC, uh, BPCI, uh, a number of years ago, many organizations were making projections of how the U.S. health health system could save with biosimilars. So, right. you know, I think that's the big thing for me is I'm, you know, as a public health provider, I'm looking to try to find real ways of savings and right. real savings in terms of patient care. You know, I, I think a lot of people don't realize the direct medical costs. And like then there's a lot of other things associated and by the time it gets to that patient's bill, right? You know, we're we're taking everything into consideration. Yep. So transparency. I mean, this is such a transparent mark. Fifty-four billion dollars that's saved. You know, right. that's huge. And how that can impact the healthcare system is phenomenal. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit more into. I know uh, Sanders was a pioneer here in the United mm-hmm. States. Uh, when it comes to biosimilars, you know, what does the future for us, you know, include? Yeah. You know, I think uh, the, the future is going to be exciting because we will have more and more biologists coming off patent and exclusivity. And so more of these, uh, the newer uh, biologics, so to speak, um, will will have biosimilars available. And what this does is that it'll uh, free up some space and relieve some pressure uh, off of uh, off of the budgets to allow for the newer next generation medications to to be available for patients and uh, you know there's there's this huge uh, uh, excitement around immunotherapy right, right. and uh, and and using that and uh, uh, for the active treatment of cancer and so th- these are not uh, these are not cheap therapies and uh, and so we have to be aware of the fact that as we keep progressing along with new and more novel therapies, you know, perhaps, you know, there needs to be some relief coming from somewhere else to do that. So I think really the biggest excitement to me about biosimilars is how it could allow for this room for the newer therapies uh, to come along. And um, and so can you can you describe some of the therapies currently on the market? I know we talked about oncolytics. Um, Could you describe just so people have an idea of what kind of drugs uh, biosimilars are? Right. In, in what, what you know, genres. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, really biologics in general, anything that ends with a MAB, right? So uh, so right now we have biosimilar infliximab. Um, there have been uh, a number of biosimilar adalimumabs approved as well. You have uh, what they call decoy receptors. So those are uh, products that and, and drugs that end with uh, a sept. So things like a tanner sept uh, would, be, uh, would be something uh, down, down the line as well. Uh, then we also have the uh, agents for the supportive care in cancer. So your myeloid growth factors, uh, your erythropoiesis-stimulating agents, uh, those sorts of uh, of, um, of agents, uh, but also the active treatment of cancer as well. So there's been a number of 
of, uh, of biosimilars approved for, um, for something like trastuzumab, and that would be for the active treatment of cancer, too. So diabetes, uh, gout, I mean, yeah. are we talking in those yeah. areas on a yeah. mass? Are we continuing to move in that space? And yeah, absolutely. And, and diabetes would, would fall into that as well. You know, their biologics, although... Uh, historically, they have not been regulated as biologics, yeah. but it's moving in that direction where the FDA is going to now kind of uh, move them over to the biologic side. So, so yes, biosimilars would include uh, di diabetes products as well. So, you know, like your long-acting insulins specifically. When it comes to biosimilars, uh, you know, we talked about cost and and access in Europe, for mm -hmm. instance. So. What does that experience teach us in that regard? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so uh, a number of years ago, uh, or actually for the past couple of years, um, a company called IQVIA, uh, or uh, formerly known as IMS, um, they were commissioned by uh, the European um, Commission, along with some other nonprofit companies, to create a report about biosimilar price, competition, volume, and you know utilization. And uh, there are a, a number of learnings that we can uh, we can get out of that report from Europe. Number one is that uh, European markets are incredibly complex. So no one market and no one member state within the European Union really. Uh, uh, it serves as a representation of the entire body, yeah. number one. Uh, but overall, in terms of in aggregate, what they found was that um, they've seen price reductions in, in terms of the price uh, per treatment day of, of these different therapies go down. Wow. Um, and it really differs depending on what type of uh, therapeutic area you're talking about. So it's like some, some of the more established areas like uh, erythropoiesis stimulating agents and myeloid growth factors, which, has been, which have been uh, around for a long time. Uh, go anywhere between 30 to 39% reductions in, in terms of price per treatment day versus newer entrants like oncology uh, drug, uh, uh, agents will be somewhere around 3% or so. But, you know, still it's savings. Yeah, still and savings. I mean, and, as long as right. we pharmacists are good at counting numbers and, right. you know, have more of you guys around, we'll, uh, we'll right. be able to show more, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And, well, and I think it's it's about the maturity of the market as well. So initially when they... Demand and yeah, so forth. exactly. So over time, you know, we might see those, uh, the price per treatment date come down a little bit more. Uh, the second part of that story actually is what it's done for access. Yeah. And what they've seen was that uh, the number of treatment days and the volume of, of use uh, for the total market at a, as a whole has gone up. So a good case of this would be something like infliximab. And you you would see pre-biosimilars, pre you would see growth in uh, infliximab treatment days. Uh, but post-infliximab biosimilars coming out, uh, the, the growth accelerated a lot more. So m even more people were being able uh, to get treated on, on, on the entire class of medications uh, because of the fact uh, that you had additional, pro um, uh, additional uh, uh, choices yeah. out and, and being able to, to treat people at a, at a lower price point. Yeah, and, and for me, again, public health, it, it's all about the access, you know, and that's really my, my, I guess, fame in that regard is I really like to see programs, projects, initiatives, you know, even things like this that can create more access because we can lower price. If you have no right. access to it, then who cares? Right. Um, my next question for you would be what kind of challenges do we have and what do we foresee? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is one that we've been talking about for quite a long time, which is biosimilars education. And I think this is a great 
um, kind of shout out to you for for having something like this, which is just getting the word out there. Can is, I hear you again? Shout yeah. out? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, what is a biosimilar? Yeah. You know, what what does it entail? You know, what what are these, and and what the, what can they do for? Uh, our healthcare system and society in general, and so, you know, uh, so I, I think it, just hearing about biosimilars more and getting familiar with them, getting familiar with the approval process and the uh, um, and, and how they're regulated and the fact that these are high quality products. Uh, and what makes, they can be used yeah, for. Yeah, exactly. What they can be used for, you know, I think puts people at ease in terms of uh, of their willingness then to, uh, to to use them. And um, and we want these additional choices out there so that there's more competition and more choice, which leads to uh, better prices, better access for patients. And ultimately, what we're talking about is improved outcomes for the entire population, for society. Well, and it also leads to personalized therapy, you know, not just a one size fits all or one type or one company and so forth. And I think, you know, with the companies uh, like your like Sandoz, for instance, you know, we see there's a big brand effect to biosimilars. It's not just somebody trying to jump in the market. Like I said, it's the right. pioneer in the space. Um, so jumping a little bit into you and your, because I mean, you're you're very, very, very impressive as an individual, you know, as a professional in the healthcare space. I wanted to talk to you about when it comes to directors of pharmacy, physicians, students, even those interested in investing, um, what points should we all know? What What are some of the points that you would say, you know, if you're getting into this space, right. what should you know? Yeah, you know, it's um, that's a very provocative question and and, and very uh, very high level. And and I think I want to back up and instead of saying there are specific things you need to know right now, I think I I want to make it a little bit more uh, high level as well, right? Because, um, you know, I don't I don't purport to know all the answers myself, and sure. I can kind of look down the pipe uh, down the pipeline and and think about there are certain things you need to know. But I think part of it is having the humility that. Um, there are things that I don't know right now, and I need to educate myself and read and keep my finger on the pulse of what's coming down the line. Because I think as pharmacists, sometimes we get stuck into the day-to-day, right? We've got a patient that needs, uh, that needs our attention, and we've got, uh, we've got to do our CEs, and you know, we have uh, our, our list of to-do things if you're um, in academia. And, and you, don't, you don't ever get to kind of take a step back and say, what's really going on, right? And, and where, is, uh, where are things like uh, AI going to take us in the future? And, uh, and so I think, um, to me, the, the biggest point that I can say is that think far ahead and don't get into the data. Don't just get into the day to day and let that be your world. But you have to think what's coming down. What's what are some of these external threats to uh, our profession? That's that's uh, that's coming down and and uh, and then adjust your strategy for that. So do you see biosimilars being in a space I mean, the the concept that I have seen, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the physician Daniel Kraft. He's a very innovative, uh, innovative okay. speaker. He runs Singularity University. Okay. Um, he's spoken about the idea that one day we'll be able to put our finger on a blood strip. It'll take our blood. Right. And then within 30 seconds, our warfarin will be 3D printed in front of us. Right. I mean, do mm-hmm. we see that in sense of biosimilars one day do you see that for you know do you foresee that right. or you hope are you hopeful for that <laughs> yeah you know it's um it's interesting because uh that uh we we don't really have a regulatory process for for something like that yeah. at this point in time uh back in um a, a few years back 
I attended a presentation at ASHP mid-year uh, where a, um, uh, somebody from the Department of Defense talked about how they could deploy uh, these modules to the battlefield that could actually, um, uh, based off of uh, a, a core amount of, of raw ingredients, manufacture on the spot uh, various active pharmaceutical ingredients, um, including uh, biologics as well. So uh, specifically, he was talking about erythro erythropoiesis stimulating agents. Now, um, he had to make clear that these are not regulated. Re yeah, yeah. regulated. You know, they're not what we could, would consider. They're just in the military. Yeah, exactly. And, but it's for a completely <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. different purpose yeah. than interstate commerce, Correct. right? So, um, so I think. Um, you know, I think I think the technology is, is will be available, but the question is how do we regulate those and how do the how do they become mass available to the public? I think that's a question that society has to answer. Well, we know the military usually kind of sets the tone for a lot of healthcare right. space. I mean, they have surgeons out there that are, you right. know, in in some hospital here in the states. Yeah. And their arms are being utilized as robots somewhere right. else. Absolutely. Uh, I know that you and I spoke about your career and involvement in academia and also oncology and uh, health economics outcomes research. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on the current state of pharmacy. Right. I know that uh, we've done a discussion on where we need to be. You just actually got into that mm -hmm. about some right. of the outside um, negatives and things that, you know, maybe you have factors to us. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit. You know, wh yeah. where, where do you see pharmacy? Where do you see it go going as well? Right. Yeah. You know, I think... Um, at least when I was in school, uh, my professors made sure to uh, tell me about how the roles of pharmacists were changing from dispensing to clinical, right? And I think for the most part, that's that's been achieved. And uh, yes, you can talk about, well, we haven't gotten provider status in X number of states and things like that. But if you kind of look at what are pharmacists doing and, uh, and, and where, where do students want to go after pharmacy school, it's all these clinical clinical roles. So even though perhaps uh, some of the state laws need to need to follow up and 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 uh, catch up and catch up to that, yeah. right? I think I think we're we're predominantly there. So where's really the next uh, sort of uh, wave for pharmacy? Where where's where's the future for that? And um, you know it, it's interesting. I just saw uh, the the World Economic Forum is going on, right? And and uh, many of the the speakers were talking about the uh, the concept of, of upskilling. And I think that's going to apply to pharmacy as well, because I think what's going to happen is we can get into the same, um, uh, I guess, uh, thoughts about being comfortable in just doing the day-to-day -day clinical. But the problem is that that itself is also not, quote, unquote, safe. Sustainable. Um, yeah, and sustainable, right? right? And especially if we have artificial, something like artificial intelligence. So um, just to give you, uh, if you remember back to your clinical days, right, going on rotations, uh, what you would do is you would spend probably two hours in the morning looking at 20 patient charts. Uh, but in the end, you would really make an intervention on maybe two or three, right? The, the sickest ones that actually needed an intervention. But you had to look at 20 charts Ten to know that two or three needed the intervention. Right. Everybody else was okay. But AI could do that. But in AI five could minutes. do that exactly. It could triage the patients for you, and and send you to the right patients so that you're spending your time 
uh, focusing on those interventions and not necessarily just reviewing the charts. Well, I think too many people think that there will not be patience because of technology, which is right. the backwards way of thinking in my mind uh, and probably in yours. Uh, I think it helps us focus more on the patients that need to be treated rather than right. the wasted time on those that may not need to be. Right. And I mean, even in consulting, how much charts I would go through and maybe out of 400 charts, give 10 recommendations, right. uh, you know, and don't quote me on that because I don't want to have the state of Florida come after me. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, the idea yeah. is that I, I think that it's it, it's important for us to utilize technology. Now, I get it. Some technologies may end up taking some areas of jobs away. Right. But we need to be more of the understanding. We need to have more of the understanding that <laughs> that's going to happen with any industry. Absolutely. It's how we create value. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know. I was talking to students yesterday and somebody was asking about uh, they're in retail and they asked about how um, not being paid to uh, work with chronic care management in terms of a, right. a, a CPA, a, a collaborative practice agreement. Right. But the problem that I or the, the solution I see is that MTMs, how many pharmacists <laughs> used to do that before a payer said we're going to pay for it? Right. I believe that if we show our value then people will recognize it because they need that expert like we are. We're yep. experts. We have this niche. So I I mean, I'm sure you, again, I know you agree yeah. with me because we, we've gone over yeah. this together, but just the idea that I just wish more, I wish more people were more hopeful. I wish more right. people understood they need to encompass it. I think there's a lack of understanding of the technology, which makes right. people feel scared. Right. It's the fear of the unknown. Uh, so, I mean, I could sit here and, and yeah. talk about this all day, but I just think it's so important for us to encompass it. And I always yep. say, if you don't own the space, you get owned in the space. Right. You know, so I think it's very important for us to own this space. Pharmacy yeah. is us. Absolutely. And uh, again, it's it, the going back to the the upskilling part of it is uh, we, we can't feel comfortable in just thinking that uh, it's all about clinical pharmacy, but we have to think about how do we manage populations now? And and what are the skills for the pharmacist in 2040, right? Because uh, if we're talking about AI taking care of the vast majority of the patients, right? And then you need uh, fewer pharmacists to take care of those really sick patients now. What it then um, is the next generation pharmacist's role? And to me, it's managing the system and uh, keeping track of the entire system. And those that takes completely different uh, skill set yeah, different to be approach. able to do that. Absolutely. I, I see us more as liaisons. I see us as educators like we should be. Right. You know, the dispensing role is not what it's going to be. It, it, I mean, we have machines that have no back pain, no children at home, right. uh, no, you know, um, things on their mind. They're not standing up for 30 hours. Right. Uh, you know, the idea is they have less to think about. And I think that, well, they have nothing to think about their right. machine. They have, just have to do their task. Right. So they make less mistakes. I just see our role definitely being more of the person to come to as, as an all-inclusive of all their providers right. and somebody to be able to help them understand it better. I see the face-to-face -face chats. Uh, you know, we see the lines at, at pharmacies mostly being mm -hmm. family members versus the patient at these days. And right. it's just we need to get to our patients. We need to educate right. them. So I, I believe technology is going to help us out. But, uh, Doc, I truly appreciate you coming on the show today. I truly appreciate you coming down. Tomorrow we have Sandals Day. I hope you're excited. Absolutely. I'm excited. We got about 150 students signed up. 
Um, but I can't wait to make this uh, podcast go viral, make uh, this video go viral. Uh, we we just truly appreciate having you today. So this is another episode of Polititalk Rx on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I want to thank everybody for listening in today. It's a very special day for us to have Dr. Lee on and uh, talk about biosimilars. It is the future, and I hope more of you are educated. And if you want to hear any more information, where can they go visit to, so that they could hear some more information or get some more information about biosimilars? Um, there's a number of websites that uh, I'll send you some links to, and you can uh, link to that. Uh, so we'll help below, and uh, we look forward to having you guys on the next show. Have a good one, guys. Thank you for listening to Polititalk Rx, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. If you're in the profession of pharmacy or if you're in the healthcare industry, you can't afford to sit idle and not be informed about your profession. We ask you to share these podcasts with your fellow pharmacy associates, your state and local government officials, and get involved in politics in some capacity, starting with being informed. We must take action, but only when we're educated and understand the issues and policies which lead us to a better tomorrow for our profession. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Polititalk Rx and send us email at polititalkrx at gmail.com.